Hebrews chapter 11 now, verses 4 through 6. And we're continuing to look at Hebrews 11. It's a very famous chapter in all of the Bible. Some have called it the Hall of Fame of Faith or the Hall of Faith. But this chapter here is exploring key people throughout the Old Testament who exhibited great faith to one degree or another. And we've looked at the first three verses already where he basically said, let me explain what faith is. And he gave terms like faith is your assurance, your down payment, that the things you hope for in Christ, like eternal life and eternal salvation, you haven't experienced them yet, but you hope for them. Faith is your sort of down payment that you've got them. They will happen for you. The second thing faith was, is he said faith is a type of proof and evidence that you can have real conviction to see the things that are invisible, the things of God that are invisible. You can't see things with your natural eyes. And he gave the example of creation. But with faith, you can see these things. Now, in verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 11, he said that the Old Testament saints gained their approval by faith. Approval meant a good testimony. They were well spoken of by God about their life and character. They weren't perfect but they were people of faith. God gave them a sort of commendation, an approval, a, stand, a, a seal of approval, basically, that their life of faith was exemplary. But why is Hebrews chapter 11 in the letter of Hebrews? Why is it here at this point? I believe it's meant to help these Christians, his, his original audience here, but the same for us today. He wants them and us to be, I think, on the one hand, warned, and on the other hand, encouraged, warned and encouraged to look at these examples of these Old Testament faithful people and see, here's the warning, and the warning will be, you cannot be right with God, you cannot please God without faith, and the encouragement is, if you have faith, then know you are pleasing to God and He delights in you. The challenge is to press on and keep going in that faith. The audience of Hebrews were probably ethnic Jews who had converted to Christ. We've said that many times before. But there's this challenge he gives them, a warning to not fall back into Judaism. This idea that they would abandon Christ, they would walk away from salvation by faith. Why would they do that? They're facing various types of persecutions. They're still in a Jewish society. It's not friendly to those who have said, I think Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Well, 99% of the Jews did not believe that. So they're facing a lot of persecution of one form or another. So in chapter 11, the writer labors to prove that from the Old Testament, which a Jew would have held near and dear as God's word, he's going to then make this case that, look, the Old Testament proves by looking at these people that your self-effort, your works do not make you righteous with God. Only by faith can a person be pleasing to God. So he musters witness after witness after witness. He'll go on and on with, look at this guy, look at this guy, look at this guy, look at their faith. And he's all trying to make this case that even in the Old Testament before Jesus Christ, people were pleasing and approved by God by faith. So in this passage today, we're going to look at his first two, Abel and Enoch from the Old Testament. What I want you to see with this message this morning is I think we need to learn from the examples of Abel and Enoch that faith is necessary. The key word's necessary. It's critical. It's necessary to please God and be declared righteous. Righteous meaning you're no longer guilty of your sins. How can I be declared righteous, declared just, so to speak? 
only by faith. It's necessary. So therefore, we must live by faith, like that of Abel and Enoch, and press on with boldness in our faith. So Christians, we face pressures and persecutions today. Now, when I say persecutions, we've probably not been physically persecuted for our faith. I, I hope you haven't. But if you've lived the Christian life long enough, and if you've been public with it, you have probably encountered some form of, I'll call it pressure, a pressure to sort of hold back from fully showing your faith in Christ, to sort of shrink back, not fully live it out. Our culture pressures people to, maybe if they say they're Christian, to sort of hide that, but not only that, it's ironic, our culture is actually sometimes very religious, because our culture kind of says there's this idea of Look, be spiritually minded. It's okay to be a spiritual person and, and find your own way to God. But Hebrews says, listen, the thing is there's only one way, and the pressure is to shrink back from that one way and not really show it. But Abel and Enoch show us that it is only by real faith in the one true God through Jesus Christ that a person can be accepted by God. So I want to look this at that this morning. Let's see what faith did for these two guys, Abel and Enoch so many centuries ago and what we can learn from them. The title I want to give you for this one is Faith is Necessary to Gain God's Approval. He's going to use those two men to say, here's what they did and here's what we need to see, is it's necessary. You have to have it in order for God to approve of you. Without faith, God is not approving of you. He will not be pleased with that life. If you would join me in standing for the reading of the scripture, and let's just read Hebrews 11, 4 through 6. It starts with, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. Let's have a moment of prayer, please. Lord, I now ask that you bring my studies to bear, my thoughts to bear. Holy Spirit, would you make the truths of this passage clear and compelling to every listener here? Would you encourage the faint-hearted, encourage the weak-hearted, Lord, that they would see today a new way to be strengthened in their faith and to grow in it? Lord, if there's any here that are not of faith, they maybe have thought they were, but they're not, would you... Would you just stick their hearts, Holy Spirit, in such a way that they respond like Acts 2, where they just simply say, what must we do to be saved? And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. We're going to look at two guys. I think I'm doing them both together. I think grammatically they're kind of coupled together. He's trying to use the two to make one big point here. Again, the main point will come in verse 6, so we'll work our way there, but as it says, it, without faith, it's impossible. It's impossible to please God. It's impossible to be right with God and approved by God. So how did Abel and Enoch show this? Let's start with Abel here in verse 4. Again, it just says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Now, the thing with Abel is what he's explaining about his story is Abel, I want you to think of what he did as an act of worship. Abel worshipped God. By faith. So the point of Abel's story, I believe, is by faith, Abel became righteous. So that's what he's going to try to draw attention to about Abel. When you look at Abel's story and what he did, and we'll go to there in just a moment in Genesis, 
He says, well, what happened to Abel is God declared him righteous, no longer guilty of his sins, right with God. How? By him being a good guy? And No, his faith. But Abel engaged in an act of worship to God. When we go to his story, I want you to keep thinking like that. What he did was an act of worship. What, what he says that Abel specifically did, he offered to God, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, it says a more acceptable sacrifice to God than Cain. Cain is his brother. More on that in a moment. So his point is Abel brought a more acceptable sacrifice than his brother Cain. That word or phrase more acceptable, it can mean that something is greater or better, either in quantity, like an amount, or quality, like how good it really was. Now here in context, he means, like it says, Abel brought simply a better sacrifice than his brother Cain. So both brothers came to worship the Lord, and Abel brought a better act of worship than his brother Cain did. Now Abel's better act of worship, what it really did, he says in Hebrews 11.4, it proved something about Abel, that he had a heart of faith. The, that act is not what saved Abel. It was the action he took that proved the faith he already had. And God approved of Abel, therefore, because of his faith. The English Standard Version I'm using again says this word, commendation. So if you look at verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable or better sacrifice than Cain. In the next phrase, through which he was commended. Now that word commended, the ESV keeps that word throughout our passage. I'm making this point for a reason here in just a second. It'll be clear. In verse 2, if we were to read that, it says, For by it, that's faith, the people of the Old Testament received their commendation. That's what the ESV says. And it keeps that word in verse 4, that Abel was commended by God. And then if we skip down to verse 5, you're going to see that Enoch was commended by the Lord. Now, what that, what's going on here, some other translations in English will change the phrases just a little bit, but I want you to note that that's the author's point. He's trying to get us to see the people of old were commended by God by faith. Abel was and Enoch was, and here's how that they were. That word commendation sometimes gets translated as testimony or witness about them. It just simply means that God was acting like a type of eyewitness about their lives, their lifestyle, and God picture a court of law and God went to the witness stand and said, I can give a testimony about their life. And the testimony he gave was, I commend them as being a good heart of faith. So that's what he's driving at is God approved of their life. He approved and spoke good about them, not again by what they did. It was the faith that they had. So God commended Abel or approved of Abel because of his gifts, he says. Abel's heart of faith led to God giving the good testimony, the good commendation about him, that he was pleased with him. So Abel's gifts he brought to worship God proved he had faith, real faith. Let's look at Abel's story. It'll be on the screen, but if you want to turn, it's also in Genesis chapter 4. So in Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1, we find Abel's story and, and Cain's story as well. But Cain and Abel are the first sons that Adam and Eve had. So they've sinned in the garden. They're expelled from the garden. They're destined to a life of hardship and physical death as a result of their sin. Yet God said, I'll still save you, but for your time on earth, it's going to be difficult. Well, they have children now, though. Now, in verse 2, she bore Cain's brother Abel, 
Now, Abel, I want you to look at Genesis 4, verse 2. It says, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Okay, so it mentions here, I'm going to point details out to you, and it will kind of make sense in, on how the story goes. I want you to see that the story is being intentional to make a distinction here between their two jobs. They had two different professions. Abel was a keeper of the flocks, Cain a keeper of the ground. So there's a division of their careers, their professions here. Now look at verse 3, and both brothers are now going to come before the Lord and worship, present an offering. It reads that in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Now, I want to make a point to say that's not surprising because what's his job? He's a keeper of the ground. So that makes sense, actually. But now then Abel, let's look what he did. It says in verse 4, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. So both brothers come before the Lord to worship and present offerings to him. Cain brings the produce of the ground. Abel brings some of the flock. Now, here's where the story takes a turn. It says that in verses 4 and 5, again, the end of verse 4, the Lord had regard for Abel's offering. So the word regard meaning he approved of it. He liked it. He, the literal word in Hebrew is he looked upon it. Now, look upon it meaning you paid attention to it because you like it. But what happened to Cain's in verse 5? It says, but for Cain and his offering, he, that's God, had no regard. So God did not look with favor upon Cain's offering at all. And Cain knows this, and he responds with becoming very angry and just falls down on his face. So pause there for a moment. Let's, let's look at a few details here. Now, in this story, you see two brothers, both trying to worship the Lord, bringing two different types of offerings, and God gives two different responses to their acts of worship. He approves of Abel's, rejects Cain's. And Cain's response is he's angry, but God, I would argue, showed grace to Cain because in verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, he warned him. He said, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door of your heart and its desire is basically to take you over. So God then says to him, you need to master your sin and do well. So God didn't just reject Cain and say, don't ever let me see you again. He told Cain what to do to be right with him. But the story ends on a very bad note. If you look at verse 8, it says Cain, instead of responding with repentance and humility, what did he do? He spoke to Abel, his brother. Some translations uh, insert that he sort of called him out to the field to talk to him. And look what he did. It says when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. He murdered his own brother because he was angry that God liked his offering and didn't like his own. And God warned Cain and told him what he could do, but he didn't do that. Instead, he chose to just simply murder his brother. Very, very wicked guy. Well, what's going on with this story here? Well, God ends up cursing the ground for Cain and says the rest of your life, you'll basically live like a fugitive, a vagrant. You won't even be able to farm and get produce. Well, what's the issue with Cain's offering here? I want to be honest with you, there's a lot of debate in this story as to what actually was the problem. What did Cain do wrong? The debate is over this precise nature of Cain's sin. I want to be fair and say the story in Genesis does not directly give an answer. It doesn't just come out and say, 
here's what Cain did wrong. It kind of drops clues and we have to look at it and come to an answer for what we think maybe Cain did wrong. Some, here's what some say. Some say, well, what really happened was Abel brought an animal sacrifice, a blood offering, so to speak, an animal sacrifice on behalf of his sins to the Lord. And then God accepted that and forgave Abel. Cain brought produce rather than an animal. So they'll say the issue is in what they brought. Cain should have brought an animal sacrifice. And therefore, God would have accepted him like Abel. Because they'll say God commanded that animals had to be sacrificed in order to atone for sins, to forgive sins. Cain brought produce, so therefore God disregarded him. Cain's offering could not have brought forgiveness of his sins, they would say. Now, I actually want to share that I don't agree with that view. and Let me tell you why. It is true that sin sacrifices required animals to be sacrificed for them. That's true. However, there's nothing in the story in Genesis that says what they were doing is bringing a, specifically a sin sacrifice. It doesn't say that. The, the word in Hebrew that you read in Genesis 4 is it says they came to bring offerings to the Lord. That word in Hebrew is the generic term for tribute or gifts. They weren't bringing sin offerings. They were bringing tribute offerings to the Lord. So, again, there's a specific word it could have used in the Hebrew language to connote it was a sin offering or a guilt offering. It doesn't use that word. So I stress that again to say I don't take the view that Cain's error was he should have brought an animal. I don't think that's what's going on. They were both bringing a tribute offering of praise and worship to the Lord. God called for those throughout the book of Leviticus and other places. So again, here's though what I think is going on. The specific wording in Genesis, if you'll look back there in verse 4, or excuse me, verse 2, it's telling us that Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. I think it's doing that on purpose to say it's natural that one would bring produce and one bring an animal. That's okay that he brought produce, nothing wrong there. But it keeps going, and it says this, though. It says that Cain brought the fruit of the ground. It's a very bland phrase. He just brought produce. But look at Abel, what he did. Verse 4, Abel brought the firstborn of the flock. He brought their fat portions as well. Why does it say that? I think that's the key. Abel brought the best of what he had, the best of the best of his flock, the firstborn and all their fat portions. If you read in the law, God would say, if you bring an animal, it had better be the best that you have. Don't bring me the blind, the bruised. Bring me the best, the most valuable, only the best for God. God actually had provisions for where you could bring fruit and produce and grain as tribute offerings. That was okay. And again, though, he said, but bring me your best. Bring me the first portion of the crop to show me that you're honoring me and you're loving me. But what I think the story is wanting us to see is not in what they brought. It's the manner in which they brought their sacrifice. Abel brought the best of what he had as a herdsman. Cain brought the common of what he had as a gardener. If Cain had brought the best of what he had per God's desires and design to this tribute offering, God might have looked more favorably on that. But there's still something deeper going on here, though. It, again, I want to stress, it's not that Cain brought fruit. That's not the problem. The issue is Cain's heart when he presented it. God said that whatever offering you bring, it needs to be from a heart of faith, and it needs to be the best of what you have to offer. 
Abel did that, the firstborn, the fat portions. Cain just brought whatever. He just brought kind of second-class produce before the Lord. Cain brought the common. So again, this shows us Cain had a wicked heart that lacked faith. He had complete disregard for God's ways. He had disregard for truly worshiping God. His heart was wicked and evil. That was the issue, I believe, not that he did not bring an animal. It's that he brought a common offering with a lack of faith. Abel brought the best offering with a heart of faith. 1 John 3.12 says about Cain that we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, Satan, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. 1 John then informs us that the problem with Cain is he was a wicked guy. While he came to present that offering of the common grain to the Lord, the produce there, he was a wicked person. Abel approached God in humility and repentance and was declared righteous. Cain approached God with arrogance and disregard and didn't care. He was wicked. The proof is he murdered his brother afterwards. He didn't listen to God. Now with that in mind, let me read you Proverbs 15.8. I think this is where I get my view from this story. Proverbs 15.8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. It did not matter if Cain had brought an animal just like Abel did. I don't think it had mattered. Why not? Because Cain had a wicked heart. And Proverbs 15.8 says God will not accept an offering from a wicked heart. It's an abomination. So the point of the story, I think, is it doesn't matter what Cain brought. It's his heart. He was wicked. And God had no regard for him because he offered his offering with a lack of faith, a wicked heart. God had disregard on him. So Cain and Abel both knew the right way to worship God with their tribute sacrifices. God even warned Cain, if you do well. Well, that implies he knew what he should have done, but he ignored it because he didn't care. Abel did do well because he had a heart of faith. Cain had a wicked heart of disregard. Back in Hebrews 11, chapter 4, it says that Abel, the cool thing about him, is he still speaks today. He brought a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, a heart of faith, through which he was commended as righteous. And then he says, even though he's dead, he still speaks today. So through his faith, it says he still speaks even though he's dead. Now, through faith, that phrase there is actually not found in the original Greek. It's literally just the word through it or through him, he still speaks today. I kind of take the view that this is more than just Abel's faith that still speaks today. This is his entire life, including his murder. Him being killed is a testimony that still speaks today. Here's what I want you to, to think about why I'm saying that. Abel's obedient faith, he's in the hall of fame of faith here, and how did his story end? He was murdered by his wicked brother. And yet here he is, the first character listed of how to have exemplary faith that pleases the Lord. How did his life end? He was murdered by his brother. Abel's obedient faith, that pleased God, what did he get for it? He got murdered. It cost him his life on earth. Think about that for a second. We would probably not choose to voluntarily have Abel's life. If God said, hey, I got a deal for you. You can be memorialized in my word for thousands and thousands of years. And in fact, people, my children and Christians will be talking about you and preaching about your story from now until then on. Well, what's the catch? Your brother's going to murder you. Do we have a deal? That's a very hard sell. Now, Abel might have not chosen it either. I'm stressing this, though, to show you he was murdered, he was killed, 
because he was righteous, his brother was jealous, and yet here, though, he could say that even though we might not choose Abel's life, though, here we are talking about him, his death even still speaks to us today, in that you could look at his life and think, well, Abel might have done wrong because he was murdered. That's not a good ending. Hebrews says, no, 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 that's proof that God approved of him. How so? He was killed. Because even though he's killed, here we are talking about him saying, look at that model faith. That despite his own brother's anger and jealousy, he approaches God with pure faith and humility. And God approved of him and not his brother. His faith, his death, his whole life still speaks to us today. In Genesis 4, 9 through 10, God said to Cain after he murdered Abel, where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. He's lying. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. I think that's what Hebrews is picking up on to say. Abel cries out today with a testimony that you can live a life of faith and you may suffer for it. He suffered physically. He was killed for it. Yet I think Abel would be in heaven saying to us, but it was worth it to please God, even though my brother killed me for it. We're about to see Enoch in just a minute. He lived forever and never died. God took him up and spared physical death for Enoch. I think Hebrews is trying to get us to see some irony here. Abel, it says, had faith and was murdered. Enoch had faith and never died. Yet both are equally listed as pleasing to God because they had faith. One person's life ended in their premature murder, we could say, and another person's life never ended. Both had faith. Both were equally pleasing to the Lord. Living the life of faith, Abel would teach us, he might say, hey, it could be costly, but it's worth it. Hebrews 11.4 says, how is it worth it? Because Abel was commended by God as being righteous. Again, that he brought his gift, had a heart of faith, and God spoke of Abel and said, you are righteous, Abel. You're now in a right relationship with God. Your sins are forgiven. You're no longer a guilty person doomed to judgment. You're righteous by faith. Abel had a pure heart of faith that led to an offering that showed he loved God. Cain had a wicked heart that led to an offering that showed he didn't care about God. The point is Cain was going through the motions. Because remember, Cain still went to God. You got to ask yourself, why did he even do this if he had disregard for God? That's where I get the view. I think Cain was just routinely going through a process. He knew that this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to get something, bring it to Yahweh, and offer it up. Abel said, God, this is my worship to you for who you are. Cain said, I don't want to be here, but I have to be here. There's a big difference. Cain was going through the motions. Abel had a pure heart of worship. Cain had a wicked heart that didn't care. I think the warning and the challenge is to not be like Cain and simply go through the ritual of God. Think about that phrase, the ritual of God or the ritual of Christianity. It's easy to fall into that trap. It's easy to fall into the trap of just sort of playing Christian, playing church, coming here. Why? Because you're expected. It's Sunday, right? That's what you're supposed to do if you're a Christian. You go to church somewhere. It's expected. It's routine. There's a challenge there to not fall into the trap of Cain of, why am I here today? Because I'm supposed to be, rather than because I want to be, because this is my act of tribute to God, my act of worship. In all areas of life, not just church, but you know, maybe why you tithe and give money. Why would I do that? Because I'm supposed to. But there's a difference in that versus like Abel, because I want to, 
because God's blessed me with it and I want to share all good things with the Lord. Cain has the attitude of, I only do things because I just should. I'm expected to. Not because I have a heart of worship that wants to. The question would be, do we have a faith like Abel? A faith that obeys God out of love. Not because you're forced, because you love God. You want to because you have a heart of faith. Your offerings and your service to the Lord, they mean something to you. Because Jesus means something to you first. So now you want to serve him. You want to worship him. Cain had the opposite. Cain just basically said, Mom and Dad made me do this. I don't want to be here. Cain could not please God because he had a heart that lacked faith. Abel still speaks today. Even though his blood may cry out, he was murdered, but yet his blood cries out, he was righteous, though. Cain was wicked. And to this day, we read about Cain and Abel, and we'll be talking about this forevermore. Abel proves to us that God grants righteousness to the one who has real faith in him through Jesus Christ. No other way to be right with God except through Jesus Christ. No other way to be pleasing to God except by faith in Jesus Christ. Abel didn't earn his salvation because he did something good. He was declared righteous because of his faith. His offering proved he already had faith in his heart and he wanted to worship God. His worship was pure because of his faith. It, it wasn't just routine and ritual for him like it became for Cain, who was wicked. So I think that's what we learn about Abel, is have a heart of faith like Abel that approaches God with a desire to please God and engage in real worship. Don't be like Cain, who goes through the motions and just expects God to go along with it. People today, maybe the modern-day philosophy of Cain would be things like, you know, well, I think if I'm just good enough, God will be okay with me. But what's good enough? How much money would you have to give for God to honor you? How much good deeds would you have to do? A hundred of them? Two hundred? A thousand? How would you ever know? You can't. That's the point. You can never give enough or do enough to stand before God and him say, you were a good person. Congratulations. Cain and Abel prove that you have to be like Abel. Abel just brought what he had, but it was the best of what he had because he loved the Lord. God said, that's a heart of faith. And he's declared righteous for that. Cain brought because he just thought he should and didn't really care. And he's judged for that. Well, the next person we'll see real quick, his is much shorter. It's Enoch. What I want you to see with Enoch is by faith, Enoch pleased God. So Abel was declared righteous by his faith. Well, by faith, Enoch is said to have pleased God. He brought delight with God. God was just enjoyed Enoch. Wanted to be around him, we could say, because of his faith. In Hebrews 11:5, it now moves on and he says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, it says he was taken up so that he would not see death. He's quoting the Old Testament there, Genesis 5:23. What he literally means is Enoch was living life on earth physically. And one day God sort of zapped him up into heaven. He never physically died is the point about Enoch. He lived life in such a way that God was so pleased and delighted in him, he spared him physical death. Just took him straight up into heaven. How did he do it? I don't know. But it just says that he took him up. Was it a whirlwind like Elijah? I have no idea. But he did something that just brought Enoch up to heaven to enjoy his presence for all eternity. In Genesis 5, you find Enoch's story. Genesis 5.21, it says, When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. 
you pay attention to that phrase, walked with God, after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. But here's how historians, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. So Enoch is in the lineage of Adam through Seth. He does not come from the lineage of Cain. He comes from the good lineage. Seth became the son after Abel was murdered. Seth uh, carried on the line of like Noah and guys like that. So Enoch is in that godly line. Enoch is said to have lived 365 years. Unlike every person in the lineage, when you read Genesis, it says so-and-so was born, they lived so many years, had some children, lived so many more years, and then there's this common phrase, and he died. Every one of them. He died. He died, and he died. However, when you get to Enoch's, it doesn't say that. It says he was not here anymore. He disappeared. Where was he? It says God took him. So the reason he's significant is he breaks the chain, so to speak. Everyone dies and people die after him, but not Enoch. God just took him up into heaven, unlike the other people in even his own lineage. He walked with God, it says, on this earth, and then he was no longer on this earth. How and why did God do this? It says in Hebrews he was so pleasing to God. God had such delight in Enoch, he just took him. Now, the phrase walked with God is not just literal like walking on a path with God like a partner. It means manner of life, manner of living. Enoch's way that he lived was so delightful and pleasing to the Lord, he just took him up to heaven. And it says in Hebrews eleven five that Enoch's commendation, so to speak, what's his testimony? Well, Abel's was he was declared righteous and Enoch's is he was declared pleasing to God. Pleasing means to be, again, delighted in. You're good, you're, you're satisfied with someone. God was satisfied with Enoch. Well, what's the big deal about Enoch, though? We honestly don't have a lot of details. That's all that's in the scripture, except for another reference here I'll show you. In the book of Jude, Jude verse 12 says, These are hidden reefs at your love feast. These are... Uh, excuse me, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted. What's he talking about? False teachers, wicked people. But he goes on, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now, verse 14, here's where Enoch comes in. Jude says, it was about these, he means about these kind of people, wicked people, that do damage to God's people and hate the Lord. It was about those people that Enoch, same Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. There's a lot of ungodliness in that verse. These ungodly people with ungodly ways that do ungodly things but his point is Enoch was preaching in his generation, saying, the Lord is coming, people, and he will punish all this ungodliness. Jude says in the same way that they dealt with false teachers, Enoch did with wicked, sinful people in his day as well. There's a Jewish tradition outside of the Bible that viewed Enoch as a prophet, just like Isaiah and Jeremiah. They believed that he preached before the great flood of Noah. You see, Enoch was the great-grandfather of Noah. And then you can know Noah's story. The flood came and God 
judged every person on earth for their such great wickedness except for one family, Noah's. Well, Enoch was his great-grandfather, and I'm using all that to make this point here then. Try to imagine the world that Enoch lived in, the culture around him. It was so wicked and so ungodly that just three generations later, God wiped it all out. That's how bad it was. Yet despite all of that ungodliness around him, Enoch had such faith and lived so pleasingly and obediently to God, God spared him physical death. I think the point is Enoch lived in a very counter-cultural way. He saw everything around him, all the sin and wickedness, and yet he preached. He said, you need to turn away from this. The Lord will judge one day. And Enoch not only preached, he was a model example. To the point God just said, the world's no longer worthy of you, Enoch. I'll just take you up here to be with me. By faith, Enoch warned the world of God's judgment to come. And he gave the world an example of what it means to live pleasing to God with his lifestyle. God rewarded him by not even letting him experience physical death. Can we be like Enoch? Well, it'd be very difficult, but still the question would be, but why not? Could we not live in such a way by such strong faith that we please God in all areas of our life to live against the odds of what our society and culture may say how you should be, which is to be like them so they feel better about their sin? Enoch didn't do that. He did not fit in. He stood out, I'd imagine. I'm sure he took a lot of heat, too, for the way he lived. But look at his testimony in verse 6. It goes on in Hebrews 11, 6. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. The opposite means Enoch lived by faith and pleased God. So Hebrews wants us to see, look, it's impossible to be pleasing to God, to be accepted by God, to be declared righteous by God without faith. How else could Abel and Enoch please God and be righteous? Abel was murdered. Enoch never died, yet both are said to be in the same lump. What's the lump they're in? They had great faith that led to great acts of obedience, and God honored both of them in their own way. The author's point of Hebrews is don't go back to the old ways. He'd say to his audience, don't go back to those old ways of Judaism, of trying to be right by your self-effort and your works. No, don't abandon your faith in Christ. Christ is the only way to be safe from sins and be pleasing with God, to be in a right relationship with God the Father. Because look at Hebrews eleven six, and I'll end on the last few phrases here. He says, without faith, it's impossible to please God for whoever would draw near to God. So if you want to approach God, that's this phrase, come to God. If you want to approach God, you have to do two things. He says, first of all, you actually have to believe that God exists, that he is, that he's real. You can't be pleasing to God if you don't even believe he's real. Abel and Enoch sought more of God. They didn't just believe God was real. They wanted God. They wanted to be with God, close to God every day. And that's the sort of the second phrase. Not only do you believe that God exists, but he says that you must believe that he rewards those who seek him. Not only, again, believe he exists, but trust that if you draw near to God with your daily life, you will be rewarded in your own way. Abel was rewarded with righteousness. Enoch was declared that he was pleasing to God and he never physically died. Both men rewarded for their faith. Both were declared righteous and pleasing to God. Why is faith important then, real quick? Because without it, as he says in verse 6, you cannot please God. You cannot be accepted by God. You cannot be made righteous by God without faith. But that begs the question, faith in what? It's more than just believing God exists out there somewhere. 
The rest of the Bible would tell us it's about faith that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. We need someone else to pay for our sins. How is that? Through Jesus Christ. It starts by faith in God's Son, that He came, that He died for sins, and He rose again, and by faith in Him, you're forgiven, you're now declared righteous, and you have an eternal home in heaven. But I want to share a second thought on that as we leave here today. I'm worried, and I mean myself included in this when I say I'm worried. I'm worried as Christians, we get caught up in, I've declared my faith in Christ, now I'm good for life. I know where my home is in heaven. The point of Hebrews, though, if you read this letter, if you've paid attention for the weeks and weeks we've been here, there's this idea on the one hand, yes, have your faith and know and trust and believe that you're secured for all eternity. God forgives you. But on the other hand, there's this other tone of, but watch out for your life. How are you living? Does your life prove you have faith? I think that's the point with these stories. Cain and Abel both brought offerings, but Abel proved he had a heart of faith. Cain proved he had a wicked heart. Enoch lived, but proved he had faith because he was so obedient to the Lord. God just took him. So my question would be, if someone looked at your life on the day-to-day in those private moments, could they look at your life and still see that, yes, you're a person of faith in Christ. You live it out. You don't just say it, you live it. How you manage your money, how you raise your kids, how you structure your life at home and in public, how you are at work, how you are around people. Could they still say there is a person of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Abel and Enoch model those for us, that only by faith can we please God and be right with God. Not just for our salvation, but for our everyday living. I want to end with quoting you Isaiah 55, 6-7. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. Notice that last phrase. For he will abundantly pardon. So I want to stress to you this morning, and I'll come down and have a word of prayer to close. If you don't know Christ There's no reason not to come to him by faith. You can't be right with God without faith in Christ. You could say, I've done too much. I have too bad of a past. That passage says it doesn't matter. If you come to God in humility, he will pardon you no matter what you've done. If you are a Christian, the challenge would be, are you and I exemplifying faith like Abel and Enoch? Faith that pleases God with our daily lives, showing God we love him. We want to obey him. If you would, Stand with me, please. I'll have a word of prayer as Bruce and his team comes. God, thank you for models of faith to look to, like Abel and Enoch, and Lord, we'll be looking at many more that you've left us in the Bible. And God, I'm stricken by that none of these men were perfect. They were not perfect like Jesus Christ, but yet they were declared to be perfect and righteous because of Christ, because of their faith in you to do things your way according to your will. And I'd ask, Lord, that you let us all leave here with a sense of humility that we must seek to be more like Abel and Enoch, exhibiting faith in all areas of our life, not just for salvation, but for how we conduct our business in our daily lives, that we would prove to be people of faith in you. And if anyone is here that doesn't understand salvation, would today be the day they do, Lord? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.